Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, good. Um, my name's Robert Draper. I write for the New York Times Magazine. I used to be a staff writer at Texas Monthly, so it's great to be back home. Um, welcome, everyone, to what I believe is the sixth iteration of uh, the Texas Tribune um, uh, Festival. And uh, our panel today is um, The View from Elsewhere. Uh, before I introduce our distinguished guests, a couple of uh, housekeeping details. Um, first of all, uh, this is going to be a 60 minutes. Uh, we'll probably talk up here, maybe 45 minutes, something like that, and then we'll take questions. There'll be microphones in uh, the audience. Immediately following this, um, the gentleman to my right, uh, Governor Hickenlooper, will be uh, signing copies of his book out in the courtyard. Uh, the book is uh, The Opposite of Woe. Uh, and it is the opposite of a conventional uh, political memoir, uh, which I really enjoyed reading and think you will too. There will also be uh, <clears throat> a, um, a reception, uh, a cocktail reception uh, in the self-same courtyard, so uh, that's available too. Uh, do extinguish your cell phones, uh, however, feel free to um, live tweet the event. I think the hashtag is uh, uh, hashtag TT, um, uh, TTF. Uh, so, uh, the, um, as I said, uh, this is the view from elsewhere, and um, the gentleman to my right is uh, Governor John Hickenlooper from Colorado, uh, who began his career as a geologist in Denver. Um, upon being laid off, uh, uh, then uh, found uh, his next calling uh, in beer, and uh, uh, started up the Wincoop Microbrewery in downtown Denver. Uh, in 2003, he ran for the mayor of that city. He won with 65% of the vote, uh, I think served two terms, right? And uh, then after that, ran for governor of the state of Colorado in 2010. Uh, he is into his second term now. Uh, to, uh, to his right, uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson uh, of Arkansas, a native of Bentonville, correct? Uh, 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 under the Reagan administration, uh, Mr. Hutchinson was um, appointed uh, the U.S. Attorney uh, in 1982 at the age of 31, the tender age of 31, making him, I believe, the youngest U.S. Attorney serving in the nation at that time. Um, in 1996, uh, he succeeded his brother Tim uh, Hutchinson in, in the 3rd Congressional District of Arkansas. Right. Uh, um, in 2001, President George W. Bush appointed him uh, the head of uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration and later uh, as the head of the largest um, uh, division as undersecretary to the largest division uh, under the nascent um, uh, Department of Homeland Security. So in talking about the view uh, from elsewhere, we'll talk about um, issues that are pertinent to those states that may um, be somewhat applicable uh, to the state of Texas, but I'd be remiss not to start with a couple of things that are in the headlines. Um, inevitably, Donald Trump. Uh, uh, Governor Hutchinson, um, not really much in the way of a surprise of what's probably going to happen in your state on November the 8th, but, but, uh, but Governor Hickenlooper, uh, your state, I think, ranks 25 out of 50 in blueness. It is a true swing state. Um, can Trump carry Colorado? Well, he certainly could. Uh, I don't think he's going to. Well, certainly I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he doesn't. You're uh, with her. <clears throat> but it is, Colorado is a, an independent thinking state, uh, and there are some things that Donald Trump says that, that people feel that, that, that they, they want to hear, and, and, and some Republicans, some Democrats. Uh, he's still, 
depends on which poll you look at. He's still got a ways to go. I don't think he'll, he'll be able to, to, to get to, I don't think he's going to catch her. But he's, he's definitely got more strength there. Um, it's interesting. His greatest liability there is probably his, his draw with the Republicans. Colorado was very strong supporters for, for Ted Cruz, your previous, the person who was previously out here. Uh, and there's a lot of family values uh, in Colorado. And, and, and Donald Trump doesn't appeal to them as strongly as someone like, like John Kasich or, or, or Ted Cruz. Sure. Now, that's, I mean, the conventional wisdom had been that uh, the Latino population would come out strong against Trump. On the other hand, uh, I wonder if you're concerned that, that the polls are not altogether capturing the breadth of his support, that there are some people who perhaps won't admit to being Trump voters. I mean, do you, do you worry that the numbers are, are, um, can be deceiving? Sure. I mean, and, and given the significance of this election and how polarized the country is, uh, anybody should be worrying about this. And, you know, not all the polls, but so many polls were wrong about Brexit. And, and, that, and so many people were surprised. Certainly nine months and a year out, uh, completely misleading. And I think that makes anyone think, you know, people may say to a pollster one thing and then vote a different way. And that's going to, you know, that's a cause for anxiety. Hopefully it'll make everybody work harder. All right. Now, Governor Hutchinson, um, you were against him before you were for him. Uh, in uh, uh, February, I believe, um, you had uh, um, said that um, his words are frightening. Uh, you were concerned about uh, his talk about the wall. How, how, how is he going to pay for this wall, among other things? I think that your support for him now is less an affirmative um, action than more a, a, a signal of your um, concern for a, a Hillary Clinton presidency. Nonetheless, under a Trump presidency, would you be concerned that his uh, rather protectionist posture on um, trade agreements would undo some of the gains that have taken place vis-a-vis -vis economic development and job creation in the state of Arkansas? Well, first of all, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be with uh, my friend, uh, Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, and in terms of uh, my progression, uh, I'm always looking at uh, who uh, is my style, who would lead our party well, and I did support Marco Rubio, uh, but whenever it came down to uh, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, there wasn't any choice there. Uh, and in terms of style, it might be different with Donald Trump. Uh, so I don't shy away from that, but I am fully convinced that there's so much at stake in our country that when you look at this choice before us, that it's very important that Donald Trump win. And that is because of our court, that's because who's going to give the states the most flexibility in terms of health care policy. I think that'll be a Trump presidency. Uh, and in terms of trade policy, I do want to address that. You're absolutely right. Arkansas, with uh, our exports of rice, uh, our exports of poultry, I'm going to China uh, for my second trip uh, as governor uh, this year, trying to bring more industry from China and investment uh, into our state, which is working. We just succeeded in a $1 billion investment from China and South uh, Arkansas for a bioproducts mill. And so we like that exchange. We like the global marketplace. And so we don't want to put up trade barriers that interfere with that global marketplace that benefits uh, Arkansas. Sure, there's, there's constraints, there's problems within the manufacturing sector that we do lose jobs. We're also recognizing that uh, we're bringing in manufacturing jobs over the global marketplace because 
logistics favor us in the United States, cost production in other states, and so it's starting to return. So I am, uh, and so why, uh, what's my view of Donald Trump and his trade policy? Uh, I hope that uh, the pro-trade philosophy of the Republican Party will help shape a Trump presidency. Well, because you know, Governor, that um, he has, uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of Republicans who decided to support uh, Trump, and in fact, uh, Senator Cruz was here a few minutes ago citing this as his major reason for doing so. Uh, his uh, list that has now been expanded to 21 uh, uh, potential Supreme Court nominees. This has not been a big thing for Trump. We have not been hearing him talk about the Supreme Court for years and years and years. We have been hearing him talk about one thing for 30 years, and that's trade agreements. He has consistently said these are rotten trade deals. So whether or not Republicans can trust him uh, to, um, uh, to nominate a, uh, in their view, uh, like-minded successor to Scalia uh, could be argued as questionable. What's probably less questionable is that he's going to be protectionist. I mean, this is, this is where he's been. Well, what he's been for is we have not negotiated from a position of strength in our trade agreements. Right. We need to be tougher in negotiation. I agree with that point. We need to be tougher in terms of our enforcement of the existing trade agreements. We've been soft. We need to be more aggressive. I agree with that point. The only area that we disagree is simply in whether we need to be raising uh, trade barriers and tariffs uh, to protect the United States industry. That's never proven successful for us. So I'm confident that uh, hopefully a Republican-led Congress will temper uh, we'll let him be the tough negotiator that he is, but also be constrained in putting up artificial trade barriers for the United States that only protects uh, industry that really needs to be more uh, noble, needs to be uh, you know, more fluid and progressive in terms of being efficient and competing globally. Are you, are you concerned at all that Governor Hickenlooper was saying a couple of minutes ago that there are a lot of Republicans who kind of have traditional values in the state of Colorado and that they're going to look askance at Trump because of that. Are you concerned that, that there are a lot of Republicans in your state who are just going to be turned off by this man's character and temperament, uh, his own um, uh, misadventures, and, uh, and um, uh, stay away from the polls as a result? My sense is that in Arkansas, and Arkansas probably uh, typifies a uh, southern state with conservative values, they're energized. And so I think there will be a good turnout. I think the debate next Tuesday is probably emblematic of it, that you're going to have probably one of the largest viewing audiences uh, of any debate in recent history. And so there is a high level of excitement and intensity. In terms of the evangelical base, uh, there has been nervousness about Donald Trump, but there are some major evangelical leaders that are very supportive and outspoken. And I think it's... Uh, recognizing, one, that, that Donald Trump is willing to listen and learn. Uh, secondly, the alternative is not good. And thirdly, so much is at stake that, again, the evangelical base believes that the importance of the court and, uh, you know, who's going to be leading the Justice Department, uh, who's going to be leading the Department of Education, they're much more comfortable with a Trump-Pence. And let me tell you, Mike Pence in that equation makes a big difference to the comfort level of evangelicals uh, and conservatives across the country. So I think there's really a growing sense of comfort and enthusiasm about the Trump uh, 
candidacy and presidency than there has been even in the last three or four months. So, Governor Hickenlooper, the operative word there was enthusiasm. We've been hearing about this enthusiasm gap between the two. And, uh, uh, and I wonder, as and I'm with her, as a, as a Hillary supporter, you're concerned about that and concerned additionally that Secretary Clinton um, has not, at least in recent weeks, made much of an affirmative case for voting for her and has concentrated for her and said concentrated on um, attacking uh, her opponent. Well, he provides a pretty big target. So it's, I, I can understand that being uh, almost irresistible. But that can be a trap, right? It could be a trap. And I certainly, I think uh, at the, in the debate you'll see a, a better uh, representation of her policy thoughts. Unlike uh, Mr. Trump, she has in, in great detail laid out what she wants to do. You know, I ended up getting vetted. I'm very yes, proud. Yeah. Very, very re uh, relieved and grateful that I didn't get chosen, mm -hmm. but got vetted for Veep. So I spent several hours with Secretary Clinton, and, ta and she answered every question. I, you know, and I, the two things I came away from, I've never met an elected official who understands policy at a deeper level, and, and going back 30 years in history, why things didn't work or why other things worked. Uh, you know, this notion that she's on some sort of power, uh, you, you can't learn that much policy without being deeply empathetic and without immersing yourself over decades in trying to solve problems. She's a problem solver. She's got that genetic inclination to try and make the world better. So that was very powerful for me. And then once you look at it and you step back, and she obviously does have a, a paranoia about the media. Mm -hmm. She feels the media has been unfair to her especially. You're saying that as an observer, or you're saying that as a result of the conversations you had? No, I'm saying that as an observer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, certainly her, she does not embrace the media. She's not as open as, as, as say, Donald Trump. You don't Trump. say. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I think when you go back and look at some of the cases that, that I hope she'll make, I mean, the President of the United States is one of the most emulated people on earth. And, you know, someone who really doesn't, has a, let's say, has a cavalier, at best, a cavalier respect for the truth is Donald Trump. He'll twist any, he doesn't even use facts, right? And he'll say one thing one day, and the next day he'll say something completely different. Uh, one minute he, well, I mean, just go on and on. Is that who we want our kids to grow up? He's been in 3,500 lawsuits. He'll pretty much do anything to get what he wants or what's good for him. That, that level of kind of focused selfishness and, and kind of egocentric behavior. Uh, so that's one thing that she offers. Is a, now, she may be, you know, not trusting in the media, but she is certainly somebody who has spent her life as trying to help other people and can demonstrate it, even his foundation, right? He doesn't put any of his own money into it. It's not his generosity. It's a way of promoting his brand and help somehow lifting himself up. And we heard a lot of that at the convention. We haven't heard much of it since. That, that again, that was the affirmative case for her. Although, how do you square um, the, uh, the belief that Mr. Trump engages in serial prevarication with Hillary Clinton's um, even higher uh, untrustworthy numbers? Well, she's had, unlike him, she's had a, a billion dollars, multi-billion dollars over the last couple of years spent tearing her down. People say she can't do economic development. She created a cottage industry of people attacking her, uh, funded by, not just by the Koch brothers, but by all sorts of people that have a self-interest, right? And I think the, the server's a classic example. She wasn't trying to, she was trying to keep the media at bay. You know, from her personal stuff, she didn't want her friends or her family to get ripped through, you know, dragged out into, into the public domain. Uh, and she had been led to believe that, and she says it was a mistake. I'm not saying it wasn't a mistake. Do you think it was a mistake? Yeah, of course. It was obviously, 
But, but back then, she just thought it was a simple, legal, straightforward way. As long as you don't send anything that's highly confidential, that's marked top secret, make sure you don't send any uh, email like that. She thought it was a way to, to protect herself uh, or protect her friends and family, I think, more than anything else. That becomes the single reason that no one trusts her. Uh, it just doesn't, it, it's, a, it's a single reason because certain media, and Fox is at the top of that list, but they're not the only one, have gone out there, bloggers, there's a, there is a whole industry trying to rip her down. Well, uh, we'll, we'll move on in a minute, but Governor Hutchinson, I have to ask you that, that uh, do you, um, since your announcement of support for Trump is as much as anything else, perhaps more so, a, a, you know, a, a determination not to see a Hillary Clinton presidency, is it that you view her as essentially a third term of, of the Obama presidency, or do you view her as actually a, a, someone who would be a worse president than Obama? Or do you see her uniquely as, as a, a, a president that we should be concerned about? Well, she would certainly, in my view, carry on a third term of the Trump presidency. If you're looking at the Affordable Care Act, Obama known as Obamacare, uh, who's going to continue that? It's certainly going to be a Hillary Clinton presidency. She might make some tweaks to it, but it's going to march on with a centralized approach to it. And that's consistent with her history. Whenever she was the first lady under a Bill Clinton presidency, she's the one that pushed forward uh, the uh, Hillary care during that time, government central health care delivery system. And so she would, when it comes to the court nominees, uh, I actually think she's uh, a very pure liberal. I think she's much more philosophical than her husband, Bill. He was pragmatic. I think she is philosophically a liberal, and I think she will appoint uh, members of the court in that fashion. Uh, I think you're going to continue to see uh, the paranoia that uh, Governor Hickenlooper described that will continue in, during her presidency. I think he referred to it as aversion to the press, not paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. But I, I question whether there would be the confidence level in her presidency. She's going to start out with a deficit in terms of trust, in terms of uh, confidence and how she handles things. Uh, and so it's a contrast, but I look at, my, my choice is that there's a growing momentum for a Trump-Pence presidency. I support that, and it's not just simply the defects that we see in a Hillary Clinton presidency. They're, they're of course, from your home state. I mean, did you, in real time, I mean, it, did you view Bill Clinton back then, uh, back in the 90s, as, as uh, um, and for that matter, before him, as someone more pragmatic than Hillary Clinton? Did you identify her from way back as someone more liberal, or is this some, a conclusion you've reached recently? Well, I observed it most while he was president. I was in Congress when Bill Clinton was right. president. Uh, we actually uh, had the last balanced budget uh, compromise with uh, Congress trying to control spending. And, and so, uh, you know, we, I saw his pragmatism while he was president. While he was governor, and you're right, uh, we dealt with uh, Hillary as first lady of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Some people forget that. Uh, and Bill Clinton is 10 years or nine years as governor. And so we saw him first uh, up close. Uh, he had liberal tendencies, but there, he was uh, uh, you know, somewhat pragmatic, but they pushed forward, both of them, a more uh, high tax, high regulatory environment, and that uh, I think would be uh, typical of what she would do as uh, president. The second matter I wanted to uh, touch on that's been in you the know, news. We I'm just, sorry, go ahead, Before we Governor. let that go, we should point out that she, 
you know, Obama did pick up that nasty habit that Bill Clinton had of, of having eight consecutive years of job growth and <laughs> expanding economy between the two of them. It's the only time it's happened in 40 years. Well, there's not many that would, uh, uh, you know, there's a little bit of nervousness still, despite uh, the success in Colorado and the success in Arkansas economically, uh, that there's still a great deal of nervousness. Someone made the comment that it's really the Federal Reserve with with uh, such low interest rates that any economy is going to move forward somewhat during this time. Uh, the question is, uh, who's going to be the best to produce the economy uh, whenever we have this election over with? And I don't think it's a centralized government. It is high taxes. What's our tax plan? Is to, what, 65% uh, for the farmers that want to pass their farm down to the next generation, take well, 65% they've got, they've got a farm worth $200 million or something. You've right. got to get pretty high up for that. Yeah. Uh, these oh, are not small farms, yeah. yeah these uh, are not, this is not a, a family, small neighborhood farm. It might be well, a, no, that's where, you know, it's totally mistaken. Farms in Arkansas, you have some small family farms, you've got large farms, you've got people who have built their businesses for their lifetime, and to have the government take and confiscate 65% of the wealth that's been built. Well, what Governor Hickenlooper is referring to is that that particular tax threshold applies to uh, farms or, or any property that's in excess of, I think, 200 million or something like that. It's, uh, the, the, it's we're a not, very high that, threshold. The 65% does not apply to you know, a, a very small family farm. It's not a 10 million or 20 million. I understand, but you have people who have built businesses and they want to continue to grow those businesses. Do we want to say there's a cap on how much we grow in this e economy? And I think that's a wrong-headed policy. The other matter that's been in the news, a tragic one, of course, has been uh, relating to um, uh, the uh, police shootings in African-American communities. Uh, both of you gentlemen uh, have uh, seen peaceful protests. Uh, knock on wood, they have been peaceful in your states over the last year. Um, Governor Hutchinson, I know that, that uh, you attended, I think, a month ago, a, um, a forum on race relations with, with the police community. Are these... Are these talks fruitful? Is it just the very fact of them that's important? Or is there anything actually that comes out of such discussions that can help prevent the tragedies that we've been seeing most recently in Tulsa and Charlotte? If you're not talking in advance, then you never have a chance to bring a community together after the incident. Right. And that's, uh, to me, uh, an important lesson learned. You've got to look at it from, why does this happen? Uh, you know, we don't know all the facts, but whenever you have an officer that makes uh, a negligent mistake uh, in terms of a response, is that training? Is it a lack of trust? Is it uh, judging what the facts are before you see them? This is preventable. It's trainable. We've got to do a better job on the front end. And, and we also, in communication, and build that trust within the community. Then the second part of it is the response. And we've got to... Uh, recognize that human beings make mistakes and it doesn't always represent intentional conduct. Uh, and we've got to do a better to, job of preventing those, but we can't turn our cities into riots. We can't uh, have this level of, of a lack of support for our law enforcement. And so let's do what we can on the front end to train, to prevent, to communicate, and we'll have a better chance of success in the end whenever a mistake does happen. Yeah.
Governor Hickenlooper, you saw the, the, uh, the unrest um, that, be that became tumultuous uh, in the streets of Charlotte. It's, uh, again, uh, thank God, nothing of that order has yet taken place in Denver or anywhere else in Colorado. But how did you, how did you view the management of that situation? I know you don't want to second guess uh, uh, anyone else, but, but, uh, but insofar as, uh, as, as you're able to deduce um, how that was handled, what's, what do you think? You know, I don't want to second guess. When you're in those situations, it's, it's tough having been a mayor. Yeah. And when I, we were talking before about the, the, between when I got elected in 2003 of mayor of Denver and then I took office six, six weeks later, we had a, a young 15-year-old African-American kid who had some developmental challenges uh, named Paul Childs. And his mother or sister had actually called the police and 911. He was walking around the kitchen with a knife with the, blade, the point sticking up. Uh, he was clearly not quite all there. Uh, and anyway, the police came. The house was empty. He was of no th danger to anyone else. And he was still 12, 14 feet away. And the police officer told him, stop, stop, stop. And then he shot him six times in his own living room. And I think, you know, the wheels just about came off of, of, of the whole city uh, in that period of time. And I was lucky that my predecessor was an African-American mayor Mayor Wellington Webb, who had done a great deal, just exactly what Governor Hutchinson is talking about. A lot of relationships and, and, and trying to build relationships between uh, public safety and the, uh, and the community it didn't mean it wasn't still very tense. And we created a civilian oversight. We got non-lethal you know, beanbag shotguns and, and, and tasers. We, we made sure every police officer got uh, what they call CIT crisis intervention training so you can recognize when a kid does have developmental disabilities or doesn't speak the language or anybody. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff. The other thing, the two things I, I would add is I think we have to look at who we hire as police officers, that there's got to be greater diversity. They've got to reflect the communities that they're serving in a, in a, in a better way. Uh, I mean, I think that's uh, without question. Uh, and then the, 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 that second part is the the actual measuring of how they, how police officers operate in their community. And the, the, the really the most appalling statistic to me is the number of stop and frisk uh, situations where, and I, just in the last year or year and a half when I meet a young African-American uh, in Denver, we're not, we don't have a history, you know, an intense history of racial problems there. Ask him how many times they've been asked to put their hands on a car, how many, how many times they've been put on the ground. And it is almost everyone. And that is, really, truly alarming, I think, and, and I think it's a national issue. Is that something you hear as well, Governor? No, in the forum that we had, we, we heard the, exactly the same points, that, uh, and these are respected uh, pastors, they, they could be uh, someone in education, African-American, goes jogging uh, with a hoodie, that we're, and all of a sudden they're stopped because of that. And that, you know, does put fear, it, it, it uh, reduces trust between the community and law enforcement, and, and that's, uh, that's something we have to address. You, uh, John made a very good point about uh, recruiting minorities in law enforcement. And until we build that trust, it's going to be difficult to recruit those minority members into law enforcement. We work very hard at that, both in the state police, but I know local law enforcement does as well. We have an African-American chief of police uh, uh, in Little Rock that does a great job and tries to do that, but it's, it's all about that trust relationship and training. 
Uh, I think those are the two key points, but I do see that. Yeah, you mentioned Governor Hickenlooper, the uh, incident that took place before, before you'd actually assumed office. Um, you ended up uh, in concert with the police chief, I think, suspending that officer for 10 months and later um, confining him to desk work, right? I think yes. that's a tough call for a mayor to make, especially an incoming mayor, especially when you're trying to foster decent relations between your office and uh, the police department. And uh, did you get blowback as a result of that? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was... Uh, the, the police, and it, it is a brotherhood, and I, and I understand why that is. It's a very dangerous job, and I respect, you know, it, you know I respect the, the difficulty of the job more than I can express with words. But they protested that we had 500 police officers out on the front steps of City Hall, and they all had signs of, of Chicken Cooper, and they were going to, you know, I, I went out there and told them, I said, you know, I've been called lots worse than that when I was in elementary school. And, you know, <laughs> you're not, I told the officers that they're not breaking any new ground. But, <laughs> but there has to be a level of accountability, right? And, and I, I agree with, with what the governor said in terms of these are human beings and they're going to make mistakes, but mistakes have to have consequences. And I would just add that not only is it a very dangerous job, but we're not paying our law enforcement officers at the level that they need to be paid. And we well, you might be in Arkansas. Colorado, a six-year police officer is making 70-some thousand dollars a year with a, a remarkable pension. So I'm not saying that that's too much, but I'm saying that that's a pretty good comp for your, you know, you don't have a college degree, you're 26 years old. That's, that's a pretty good income. And is uh, for people in the law enforcement community making $70,000 six years in in Arkansas? Uh, I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. But, uh, you know, we... And need to enhance training. Sure. Uh, we need to uh, compensate uh, so that we can recruit really top quality people into law enforcement. Right. Governor right. Hutchinson, you've, um, uh, not many people associate uh, Silicon Valley or high tech as a whole um, with Arkansas, and yet um, you've done something in Arkansas that no other state has, or rather you were the very first to mandate that every high school um, have um, computer science teaching, and in fact teach um, computer coding as well, right? And I believe that when you began that initiative, there are only 20 teachers in the state of Arkansas who were capable of doing this, so it's been a bit of a challenge, but, but uh, nonetheless, it's a, it's a remarkable thing to see. And I'm assuming that um, this is because you are looking ahead to, not just for its own sake, um, uh, spawning a new generation of, of computer nerds in Arkansas, but you are thinking of this in terms of uh, how you develop the economy, right, in, in Arkansas. Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, it's been one of the most successful and rewarding initiatives that I've done as governor. And uh, the motivation first was that if we train those uh, to code computers, to write software in high school, then they're going to have incredible job opportunities because nationally there'll be one million unfilled jobs in the computer science field over the next decade. Uh, and so it's a job opportunity, but then I quickly realized it's also a recruitment opportunity for technology companies in Arkansas. Knowing that there's a talent pool then that you're developing here in Arkansas. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, previously we might lose a startup technology company from Arkansas to Boston or, or to Austin. Uh, I don't know if we'd lose any to Colorado. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now they, they don't see the need because we have the talent pool in Arkansas that we're building and emphasizing that. And so the key was not only mandating it in every high school, and by the way, we had a 260% increase in students. 
we had the largest increase in computer coding students among African-American and female students. Uh, and, and, and we're exceeding our expectations, but we put $5 million into it yes. to help retrain those teachers. Mm -hmm. So uh, those 20 teachers started, we have got over a thousand or more teachers now that have a background ready to teach that in Arkansas. Great. Governor Hickenlooper, that's um, uh, a more traditional form of the economy, um, oil and gas, it's a $29 billion industry in, in Colorado. Uh, you are a geologist by training. You have described fracking in, in, uh, in your book, The Opposite of Woe, as uh, something that gets a terrible rap, mainly because the industry is terrible at public relations. Now, some would say, well, no, mainly because it uh, is an environmentally fraught issue. Is that just a matter of, of, um, of public relations? You said that, that you don't think you'll ever be able to allay the concerns of some people, but are those concerns warranted? First, I just want to talk, yeah, sure. commend all the work you've done on the technology training yeah. and stuff. And I think if you look at why, why Donald Trump has been so appealing and so Bernie Sanders to a certain extent been so appealing, it's because so many people have lost their professions and we haven't done a good job of training yeah. them. So these new ways of getting more people able to train people in technology is crucial. And I'm always struck by the, we're trying to talk about skills in Colorado and that notion of if you look at a, a bank teller, and, and we probably have one-fifth the bank tellers we had 10 or 15 years ago, uh, and their, their skills that they have are they're numerate, they have to have a high sense of precision, sense of urgency, they've got to work collaboratively. When you look at people writing code or you know, someone in cybersecurity, of which where there are thousands and thousands, millions of jobs that are gonna go unfilled, what are those basic skills they have to be numerate, high sense of precision, they've got to have a sense of urgency, they've got to be collaborative. A bank teller would, would still need six or eight months of, of code training, just like from one of your teachers, but that would allow them to go into a career that would actually probably pay them $10,000 more starting, and they would be ready, they've got those right. skills. So I just wanted to tag that Thanks. on. We're, we're trying to work on that with, we've got a LinkedIn, a, a, a platform with LinkedIn that's gonna measure skills that you accumulate and how do you take whole professions and at scale, retrain those folks. Uh, in terms of, of fracking, it is, and, and I don't, if someone's concerned about the safety of their family or their community, I would never say that, that's, that, 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 uh, uh, that that is unfounded or, or in any way you know, not right. I do think that the oil and gas industry spent so much time being secretive uh, and had such an aversion to the media, and again, Paranoia is never the right word, so I'll go back to an, an aversion of the media that, that in some ways was very well-founded. In other words, they would get attacked right. uh, in the media and, and oftentimes unfairly. I mean, it's, it's an industrial process. My, my defense of fracking is a couple places. One is if we're really gonna get rid of coal in this country, uh, which is now, because most of it's labor-intensive to get it, it is expensive and it is, is highly polluting. And, and certainly, forget about climate change, just in terms of particulates and, and, and ozone, is, is a very challenging fuel to create your electricity with. And we've got natural gas that is very inexpensive and will be a transition fuel. I mean, I think all, everyone is waiting to get to a totally clean uh, energy economy that is, is as inexpensive and as reliable as the one we have. And I think that's within sight. I think we're gonna see that. But, my, my defense of, 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 of fracking and, and the oil and gas industry is that in Colorado, at least, we have a split estate. The person who owns a surface, you know, built a house or they own a, a farm or whatever, they don't own the minerals usually. Sometimes they do, but generally not. 
And our Constitution, if you own the mineral rights underneath someone's surface home, uh, you are allowed, and you can't get within, you know, whatever it is, 500 feet. It used to be 350, but in some cases, not within 2,000 feet. Uh, but with directional drilling, people go down under there. That is the, what people are so upset about, is this activity is close to, to, to where people live. If you ban fracking, basically you're taking away whoever owned that mineral right. You're taking away their private property. This isn't, we're not in Russia. We're not in... China, we don't take people, and I am the first person, I've said the state would help pay for this. If, if you want to ban fracking in, around a community, let's use eminent domain. That's what we use, and that's when government wants to take someone's property. Right, but, I, but granting that, but what I'm asking is whether or not the environmental concerns, leaving aside property rights, whether or not environmental concerns are warranted. I mean, sure, so, so in, in all I can tell you, in, I mean, literally 98% of the, of the oil and gas wells drilled in Colorado are fracked. Uh, we can find in the last 20 years, so this is, I don't know how many, 40,000 wells? I mean, a huge number of wells. Uh, only one and maybe two places where the groundwater was contaminated by the, by the, frac the fracking. That's what most people worry about. Now, we did have a, a lot of spills. That, that, you know, it was either crude oil or fracking would fill in, spill into somebody's pond, and we raised, it used to be, we would charge 500 bucks a day as a, a fine for an ongoing spill. Well, we raised it, now it's $15,000 a day. You know, and the oil and gas industry, the, the, the responsible operators realize that they have to fix this, and, 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 and they have a, a, public, a relationship of trust. They, if they're gonna operate, they've got, the public has to trust them. So once we went to $15,000 a day, what a surprise those spills suddenly dramatically diminished. And we, we started measuring methane. Mm -hmm. Used to have a lot of methane escape. Now the oil and gas industry is spending $60 million a year extra, and they're going several times a year to any, any you know, well that could conceivably have be leaking any kind of methane. Okay. Well, we have fracking in Arkansas yes. because we have the Fayetteville Shale, which is a great natural grass exploration region. And to me, this is just like any other area that we need to follow the science. And so when we started our fracking, there was some concern that we didn't have it exactly right. We adjusted some of our regulations to follow the science because we had some tremors that we didn't expect. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, once we, that adjustment was made, uh, you know, that fear and concern diminished. And so to me, it's a matter of fracking is, a, is appropriate to get uh, a good source of energy out of the ground but we just need to make sure we have the right environmental protections in there that we don't jeopardize uh, homeowners unnecessarily or uh, to uh, make the ground unstable. Meanwhile, on the subject of commerce, unless you have been cryogenically frozen for the last year or two, you'd know that uh, Colorado uh, has conducted an interesting social experiment under uh, the Hickenlooper administration uh, <laughs> regarding yeah. marijuana. Um, uh, I think, let's see, that you, uh, there was a 15% excise tax on marijuana and 10% uh, sales tax. Um, on recreational marijuana. Recreational marijuana. Is, is, uh, speaking purely in economic terms, is this... Has this become a boom industry for the state, leaving aside social effects? No, and, and it is one of the great social experiments, and, and I'm not gonna be popular in this room, but I opposed it, because yeah. I didn't want to be in conflict with the federal government starting a, a regulatory framework from scratch. I mean, even Amsterdam never legalized it right. and gave permits and, and regulated it. Uh, but it, I mean, so this last year we raised about $120 million between medical marijuana and, and recreational marijuana. 
our state budget, so that's $120 million, our state budget is $27 billion. When you include all the pass-throughs and federal subsidies for Medicaid and all that stuff, uh, $120 million is really a drop in the bucket. And yet, we're able to use that money for making sure the kids understand, I mean, this high THC stuff, and there, I'm gonna guess some people under 21 out here, all the brain scientists, and I remember when I was a kid, and if you read my book, you will see that I did inhale, um, but all the, the high THC now, every brain scientist I've talked to is, is convinced that the, once we get longitudinal studies, that long-term use, even in small amounts on an irregular basis, so when, you're, when your brain is still rapidly growing, when you're a teenager, when you're, they think, under 24, under 25, you'll lose a little sliver of your long-term memory. Now, you won't notice it at the time. It's a very small sliver, but over repeated usage over a period of time, kids are taking some significant risk they're going to lose some of their memory. With our $120 million, we're, we're spending $8 million, $10 million a year to, to make sure that that fact is understood by every kid in Colorado. And, you know, in the old days, before we, before recreational marijuana was legalized, any kid who wanted it could get it, right? It wasn't yeah. expensive. Sure. And I asked one kid, a 17-year-old kid, I said, well, do you think your kids, your friends thought it was safer because we legalized it? He goes, I don't think so, really. Everybody who wanted to tried it before, he said, but the one thing you are doing is you're diminishing the number of drug dealers. He says, and, and, and a bunch of kids are talking about that, and if you think about it, most marijuana done illegally probably is, is rough justice about a third to maybe even up to 50 or 60% of the total drug trade. And like any business pipeline, if you take the amount of what you're selling and suddenly diminish it by 50%, you're gonna have less salesmen. And this young kid said to me, he says, the, his name is Bucksbaum, he said, one thing drug dealers don't care who they sell it to. At least you guys are really pushing hard to make sure kids don't get it. Well, so now I have to ask the individual to your right, who was the former head of the DEA, <laughs> what you make of all of this? I mean, it's, uh, uh, I mean, are you, for, for one, persuaded by uh, what Governor Hickenlooper just said regarding um, uh, drug dealers and, uh, and how they've presumably diminished in Colorado as a result of that? And, and, and in any event, has this turned your head at all, the, the experiment taking place in Colorado? Well, we're following it very closely, first of all, mm -hmm. and uh, I appreciate your comments about, uh, you know, the risk in terms of... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, cognitive impairment to our young people. Uh, that is the greatest concern as to whether uh, you legalize you for recreational use, whether that increases drug use among the young people. And I think the answer is yes. And, Not much. I mean, uh, it, 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 there's no spike, that's for sure. And, and that, that to me is a concern. Uh, whenever you look at uh, uh, the question as to what it does to the cartels, what it does to those that are operating in the illegal environment, uh, from what I'm hearing from law enforcement, uh, from Colorado, from uh, the high-intensity drug trafficking area report that was issued there, that there are uh, law enforcement concerns that you still have a black market, uh, you still have those that are trying to undercut what is authorized, but I think you made the greatest point is that uh, this is still a violation of federal law, and we've, for for as long as we've had drug laws in this country, we've been uniform between the state and the federal level. And so now we're authorizing the state level uh, conduct that is still illegal federally, and that your point is just well taken there, Governor. And, and so, and the only way that it's even happened is because 
uh, President Obama's administration said we're going to turn a blind eye to the illegal conduct that's happening in a state that might uh, uh, provide for recreational use. I don't think that's a good direction for our country. It'll be interesting to see what the next administration does on that. Uh, but in terms of, of Arkansas, we have a debate right now on uh, medical marijuana mm -hmm. uh, on the ballot. Uh, and, you know, you think about it, we all want a cure for cancer. Say I have developed what I think is a cure for cancer. Cancer. Would you want me to get the signatures to put it on the ballot so that people can vote on whether mine's a good cure for cancer? We don't do this in our society. Right. We follow medicine and, and the scientific community and the medical community, and this is the only medical solution we're saying ought to be voted on by the people. And to me, it's just contrary to what makes good sense. So uh, we all want to alleviate pain, uh, but let's let the scientific community, and if we need to loosen up the research, I'm for it. We want to have good science. Let's go through the FDA approval process. Let's do it the right way and look at this. I think Texas actually did uh, you know, some oil that uh, will allow some, a treatment in specialized instances. That's a preferable direct, uh, direction than simply uh, put it on the ballot for anybody to vote and let the public decide what's good medicine and not. No, but there's, in the meantime, there's another wave uh, uh, taking place really on both sides of the aisle in the country relating to marijuana, and that has to do with, if not decriminalization, then at least reducing the penalties. And I'm wondering, uh, in, in the state of Texas, uh, I, uh, there, there were a number of um, bills that came before the legislature. They were all defeated, but, they, but uh, uh, there is some momentum even in this state with that. Is that the case in Arkansas? Or you, has your own, feeling, uh, your own views evolved in terms of uh, um, uh, strict sentences for, uh, for uh, people in possession of small amounts of marijuana? I wouldn't say my position has changed, but I certainly agree that that's absolutely a fair debate and that I don't think in society we want to put anybody in jail for using a small amount of marijuana. And the fact is that doesn't happen. Uh, now, I think the bigger in debate... In Texas, you can get six months for having two ounces or less. You can get six months, but who gets six yeah. months? <laughs> and so, but, but that's fair. I mean, mm -hmm. if you want to say that uh, it is not subject to six months, it's only one month, or there's not going to be an incarceration, that is, that is fine. I think the key difference is whether you're going to say it's legal or illegal. That's the defining difference, as you said, in Amsterdam. You can have a, uh, we don't want to incarcerate them. I think that's the general uh, content. But I look at the files of most people who are going to prison in Arkansas, and you're looking at, to get there, you have to be a multiple dealer, not a user, but a dealer, because we have got, an, uh, we've got a growth in our prison population. I don't want to put somebody in there that uh, is a user. Uh, I only want to put people in there who's a danger to society, and I would think a dealer would be in that category if they do it multiple times, primarily the methamphetamine. I don't see uh, marijuana users going to jail. Yeah, it's, um, well, well I, go ahead. I think, and you know much more about this than I do, but certainly one of the things I've been told, uh, that especially with uh, Latinos and African Americans, that the possession of marijuana would be tagged on to, let's say they hot-wired a car and stole a car, and, the, and maybe it's the second or third time they've done that, and it will be used to increase their sentence. You know, I can't speak to every instance there, but the principal offense that they go to jail for would be the theft of an automobile. And I would suspect that it would be uh, 
probably a probationary offense, perhaps the first time, if it's a nonviolent, it's not a robbery, it's not a home invasion. Uh, but you, and that's what usually happens. They're, the police is going to charge him with multiple offenses and in a plea bargain process, they most likely are going to drop the possession because that's just a, uh, you know, a non-event compared to the theft. Now, what I also we're looking at in Arkansas is a very important part of this debate is we have to deal with the addiction problems. Hmm. Uh, and that's leading to increased problems with foster children. Well, but that's not marijuana. That, they're, they're, we're coming pretty clear on statistics that I think we'll be able to demonstrate that, that marijuana is no more a gateway drug than alcohol. I would agree with the point that that's not the primary challenge with foster children. Right. It's more of methamphetamine and right. some of the other drugs. I would agree with that. Uh, but you know, whenever you're looking at someone that has an addiction problem, and usually there are multiple drugs involved. Sure. It's, you know, marijuana, I do believe it's a gateway drug. You start with marijuana, there's other things. You might stop there, but, but anybody who's on cocaine or who, anybody on methamphetamine usually started with marijuana. You wind up on the others, and that's where those multiple drug users uh, wind up with challenges with other criminal offenses, property offenses, supporting their habit, addiction challenges, and neglecting children. Oh, but then, then you get into pain relief, which we're, I mean, to get marijuana legally okayed through the channels for pain relief will probably take another, what is it, seven years, six years, something like that. And opioids, which we legalized, perhaps erroneously back, that's where a lot of those addictions are coming from, way more than marijuana. And I think that's the, the challenge there is that, that we're having the number of kids that are, you know, through prescription medicine they get into in the, uh, you know, in the medicine cabinet. And then at a certain point in time, they, they transition that into heroin. And then the heroin leads to who knows what. Totally separate issue. I agree with the opioid concern. Well, but it is, it's connected in the sense of pain relief, marijuana, medical marijuana being a legitimate relief of pain in people's minds and, and not leading to that other, the other drug abuses. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug, I know, I know, which, I know. Simply, I, which I, simply means that it has no legitimate medical purpose by the medical community. That's the first question there. Opioids uh, has a legitimate medical purpose, and so it is alleviating pain. The medical community has not cried out and said, we have to have smoking marijuana to relieve pain. They have developed Marinol, which is the THC content uh, of marijuana that is used in uh, a prescription pill that is available for pain relief. So the medical community said, this is what we need. Now, I believe in listening to the medical community. And if they say this is necessary, smoking marijuana to alleviate certain elements of pain, I'm not going to argue with the medical community. You would follow their guidance legislatively if you, if you were to hear that. Yes, and they have not cried out for that. It's not supported by the American Medical Association. Yeah. We've got time for questions, by the way, from the audience, if anybody has any. Um, cannot see. Uh, there they are. Yeah, sure. Go ahead and we'll go back and forth. Hello, my name is Hasib Abdullah. I'm a resident here in Austin. My question is for the governors and the polarization of politics. Just be, uh, hearing you guys talk, I think um, Governor Hutchinson, you were the first person to go to Cuba 
um, for the, you know, opening up trade. And there were some grumblings in the Republican Party and then governor about the fracking. It's kind of different from most Democrats. Do you think the fact that you're governors, you're closer to the people, so you're more moderate? And do you think the polarization is really a Washington problem and that maybe governors and um, state representatives are the best people to solve it? Thank you. Did you guys get that question? It basically is about whether polarization, uh, having heard what we've heard from these gentlemen, whether that's something that is more a phenomenon nationally than statewide, I believe, given. Well, I've served both at the national level and in state uh, governors, and uh, there is a difference. Uh, I think that governors are more pragmatic, they're problem solvers, they have to bring people together to address challenges. And whenever I look as governor at Cuba, for example, uh, and the fact that uh, there's 11 million people down there that want Arkansas poultry, that want Arkansas rice, but we're restricted because we can't compete with Brazil and Thailand for selling to them because we can't extend credit. Those are business to transactions, and we're limiting by the federal government the ability to extend credit. It hasn't worked for 50 years. We need to change that policy, extend credit, open up those markets. That's a pragmatic approach, but it's also, I think, a principled approach as governor that what we're doing hasn't worked there. Uh, governors are problem solvers, and uh, uh, in Arkansas, I just take joy of the fact that we can work with Democrats, Republicans uh, alike to do a computer coding initiative. Uh, to increase trade for our state, uh, grow jobs. So uh, I like uh, the leadership that governors provide, and that's not to take away from Congress, uh, but it's, it's a difference. And uh, I do think governors, despite the results of the last primary contest, are really good chief executives for our nation. <laughs> um, and I, we obviously agree on that, that the buck does stop if you're a governor, you've got to, you've got to answer problems. I do think that the, that the pond is somewhat poisoned, that the level of attack ads, that we see at every level, uh, especially in national, but in, also in gubernatorial, you know, you never see it in, in the private s sector. You never see Coca-Cola doing attack ads against Pepsi. Trust me, those <laughs> companies don't like each other. And yet, if Coke, I, I mean, attack ads work. If, if Coke did an attack ad against Pepsi, Pepsi sales would go down. Pepsi would have no choice but to do an attack ad against Coke. Coke would attack Pepsi, Pepsi would attack Coke. They would depress sales in the entire product category of soft drinks. Right. What we're doing is we're depressing the product category of democracy. Yes. And people are just tuning out. No. And I so think, the product category of voter turnout, too, you believe? Voter turnout, uh, people, t I mean, this, this is the best form of government there is, but it's fragile, and people are, are not going into detail. Uh, democracy depends on two things. Uh, people have to be empathetic, wanting to help people they're never going to meet, and they've also got to be willing to, to, to dig into the facts about an issue. It's interesting that the private sector, the business community, makes that pragmatic judgment that this is bad for yeah. everybody. Right. But in the political arena, right. it's all short we, term. we don't make that same judgment that this is bad for the body politic. Let's be pragmatic about that. Yeah, as long as it works Just, for you, as long as you win, then yeah, go the, ahead. The, the fastest growing, the fastest growing um, party right now is the independents. And part of this is also that as, as it gets more vitriolic, nor, reasonable people will no longer get into politics. And so you end up having the extremes of both parties in the primaries and running. Uh, the, the big fear for a Republican now is a Tea Party person will come out and, and, and do a primary on them with Democrats. It'll be a burner. A Bernie or a Bernie or someone will come in. And 
the, the middle of the road is get, the middle of the of the electorate is getting less and less represented. Yeah, go ahead, Governor Hutchinson. You said you're a Trump supporter now. The core of his campaign is racism. It's a war against black, brown, and Muslim people. It's not a bug. That is a feature. Do you support that as well? Well, I disagree with your analysis. Uh, for example, uh, whenever you're looking at uh, immigration issues, uh, if it is appropriate, and I served in Homeland Security, it is appropriate to look more closely at someone that comes from an area that is rampant with terrorism. Like Germany? Uh, it, it, like it, England? That any would, place would we that bar has, the mayor of London from coming uh, here? May I answer your question? It is appropriate to look at individuals more closely when they come from an area that is rampant with terrorism. And you're right, it could be someone coming from Germany that we need to have close scrutiny of if there's uh, you know, a history of terrorism or they've traveled to areas that uh, have uh, more terror. And so, yes, I, uh, my, my daughter-in-law uh, was born in Chihuahua, Mexico. She will probably not vote for Donald Trump. And you know, that's the, uh, and I understand it because uh, the, uh, we haven't done a very good job uh, Donald Trump has not very, done a very good job of making sure that our, that our language, that our rhetoric uh, is unifying. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's inappropriate to say that there uh, is racism involved in that. Uh, I think the issue is uh, what he's, how, how he you articulates not, sir? How could you deny that that is not the center of his campaign? I just did. But I mean, well, that's, not, that's not honest. Yeah. Hang on, Terry. Let me just, just in your bones, do you not believe that Donald Trump is a racist? I, I don't see it. If you look at what he has said, tell me something uh, that... Uh, I'm just asking. Well, let's start with, we can start with birtherism, the, right? You can start with that. Uh, the President wall, Obama wasn't born. the denial of all Muslim people. Are we at war with all Muslim people? The notion, well, that, well, just, just the notion that immigrants are coming from their countries to kill us is deeply racist and not borne out by the facts. If you listen to his most recent enunciations, he has articulated in terms of geography, which means that he's getting some good advice from a <laughs> Chris Christie and people who have a good background in security. And that's where I, you know, you need to articulate it. So yes, I would like to see that uh, the rhetoric changed, but I believe that when you look at the essence of policy, we have a serious challenge in this country that we've got to do a better job in terms of vetting those that might come here that might pose a risk to this country. That is a fair policy. Let's try to get I have articulated some differences with him in terms of the wall. That doesn't change, but uh, that doesn't mean you're a racist. It means that you believe that we have a mass immigration problem that we have to deal with in this country. Sorry, let's just get in a couple more questions. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Evan Williams, and first of all, I would like to thank you all for such an insightful discussion today. And my question is for Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, despite sort of winning the lottery and being born and raised here in the great state of Texas, I would love nothing more to, and I'm planning on moving to Colorado uh, sometime in the near future. Hopefully no, wait, 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 not Arkansas? <laughs> I'm sure sure. Arkansas is a great place <laughs> I need to visit someday, but I'm in love with Colorado. so. The question I have for you is, what Texas strengths, what values uh, can someone like me uh, bring to the table uh, to provide a 
positive impact on the state and vice versa. What can we learn from Colorado so we can make both places a better place to live? <laughs> and also, do you plan on visiting any breweries while you're here in town? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Colorado just went over the 350 mark in terms of federally licensed breweries. It's, it's, you know, I started my, my brew pub in 1988. And we were the fourth brewery, the second craft brewery in the state of Colorado to see that they're now 350. Uh, first, Texas does a lot of things really, really well. And I mean, one thing that they do, there is a sense of place. You know, the, the word topophilia means love of place. Texans love Texas. And I never really quite got that until I dug into the public school system, where in Texas, you'll have anywhere from seven to nine years where you will have significant parts of what you're learning will have to do with Texas history. People in Texas are taught all about the cool parts of their history at a level that most of us, we, we're almost every other state. I think there's only one or two other states that do more than two years of really teaching their own history to their citizens. I mean, that's, that love of place, I think, is incredibly important in terms of people being happy with their lives, which means they're going to be more productive and they're going to be better neighbors and all the things that make democracy happen. Uh, Texas also has a, an innovative spirit, a sense of entrepreneurship, uh, a sense that you can do anything, and part of that is that, that pride in place, but also part of it is the, the, the way the, the entire culture here celebrates business. Not that it's, I would argue sometimes they, they don't have the regulatory framework quite as, as high as it should be, but generally, I'm a pro-business person, right? I think that that's the best way to have a safer world and to uh, diminish poverty is to have a strong economy, but with the highest standards of, of, of you know, in the environment, the highest standards in terms of, 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 of good government. So anyway, uh, we'll talk later about what you're going to do when you come to Colorado, because we're certainly, we, we've always depended on the kindness of immigration. <laughs> we've got time for one more question, so go ahead. Great, thank you. My name is Berkeley Mashburn. I'm a senior here at UT Austin. My question's also for you, Governor Hickenlooper. I used to live in Colorado. I'm, I lived in Vail, Colorado for three years in middle school. Wow. And the street I lived on is now known as the Green Mile because there are so many dispensaries right there. So I was wondering if you could speak to how the legalization of marijuana has affected the tourism industry in Colorado and whether you would recommend legalization in other places for that purpose. So that's a, and they're all excellent questions. And I, uh, first people think that, you know, we legalized marijuana because we thought it was a business deal and it wasn't. The, we have been either first or second for the last 10 years for the in-migration of millennials, of young people. And most young people don't think there's that big a difference between marijuana and alcohol. If anything, they think marijuana is a better way to relax than alcohol system-wide. So they're the ones who legal, that's why we legalized marijuana. It wasn't to attract business or to help our budget. Uh, in terms of tourism, we do see that there's a lot of marijuana sold in the, in the tourist communities, uh, but the polling we've done seems to indicate that those are people that smoke pot at home and they think this is kind of a groovy thing to, you know, go smoke pot legally or, to, or you know, uh, they, they use a lot of edibles. We haven't seen a spike in Colorado of Colorado citizens. In other words, the people that were smoking it when it was illegal still are. The people that were not smoking it still aren't, which is, I mean, that's a big worry that we had. But I still tell the governor, I tell everyone, let's wait two or three years because mm -hmm. His concerns about the effect on young people, I think we need more time. And it, I mean, it's great to have, I mean, we're putting 15 or $20 million to, to drug counseling, to addiction, to, to having safe homes for people that are really going through, who really did, young people especially, that went, went off the rails. 
We have resources, more resources now than we ever had for treating those problems, which we've always had. But I'm still, we're still very worried that they might, there might be a, a dramatic increase in that, in which case it, no, no level of taxation would justify uh, those, those lives lost. So it, it does help tourism, <coughs> but if you look at the increases of tourism, we've had six consecutive years of record tourism. So that's before it was legalized. And, and the, the curve, the rate of growth hasn't changed. So we don't think it's fanning the, fanning the flames. I'm afraid we're out of time, but um, we've, uh, this is the very last event of the afternoon. As I mentioned, there is a reception following, including a book <laughs> signing by Governor Hickenlooper. I would like very much to thank Governor Hickenlooper and Governor Hutchinson for a really, really great conversation. Thanks, guys.